Hi, everyone, and welcome to Badass Women at Any Age. This is your host, Bonnie Marcus. Sometimes we face trauma in our lives and are faced with the choice of how to deal with it. My guest today, Gemma Aitchison, faced the unthinkable, a brutal murder of her 16-year-old sister, Sasha. That horrific tragedy and then the ongoing trial led Gemma to found Yes Matters, an organization which supports victims of abuse, challenges of gender stereotypes, and delivers training to professionals. And she's made it her mission to change the world for the better by teaching society about the links between pornography, objectification, gender stereotypes, and male violence. Her unflappable and informed approach to delivering feminist messages led her to become a valuable advisor to political movers and shakers. She's attended private meetings with politicians, including former Prime Minister David Cameron. Gemma was asked to present findings from her dissertation research on the impact of pornography on young people in Westminster. Her research on gender stereotypes and VAWG, which is Violence Against Women and Girls, has also been heard by European Parliament. Gemma's achievements in VAWG space has been recognized by the Win Award for the Protection of Women and Girls' Rights in 2016, the Emma Humphreys Memorial Prize in 2017, and the Woman of the Year Award in 2017. She's a go-to media commentator on issues related to violence against women, appearing on BBC and GB News, and featured in The Guardian, The Observer, Daily Mail, among other UK outlets. And she's joining us today from Manchester, England. Gemma, welcome. Thank you so much. Hi, everyone. So what time is it there right now? It's around half five in the evening here tonight. Because uh, you are, I think, nine hours difference from us. I'm so pleased that you were able to fit this into your schedule and share your story because it really is an amazing story of trauma and activism on your part. So let's start at the beginning. Please share with us what your personal journey has been to where you are now today. Yeah, it has been quite a crazy story, to be honest. I'm not a person who you would expect great things of. So here in the UK, we have very much have a class system and I'm a working class girl, came from a single parent family. And I was, when I was 14 years old, I was living outside a department store when I was 14 before I was helped by a charity. So I'm not the sort of person that you would expect to contribute much to society, I suppose. But yeah, to go from living outside the department store to have helped write two policies with our government is quite a big journey for sure. Yeah, so fill us in. I mean, how did you make... I mean, obviously, the trauma with that tragic occurrence with your sister propelled you forward. But what happened in between being homeless to that event? 
I was in a family where there was, I experienced child sexual abuse, something which now as an adult and a professional I know a lot about. But obviously at the time experiencing it, that was why I ran away from home and my family chose to believe the perpetrator over me, which is something, as I say, I can understand more about now than I could then. And so I ran away from home and I lived on the streets for a while until a charity helped me, a charity called Backup here in the UK. And I lived with, I guess you'd call it a foster family. They were lovely. I had a support worker and her name was Bex. She was an amazing woman. And she planted the seed in my mind for the first time in my life at 14, 15 years old that what I had to say even mattered. Here in the UK, if you are from what they call like a benefit family, if you get benefits or welfare state help, which my family did, you are worthless. Our society here in the UK, it associates wealth and character. So if you're poor, it means you're bad, it means you're lazy, it means you're stupid. And so I believed all those things about me, which helped my perpetrator. So she was the first person who ever planted the seed. Actually, Gemma, you're intelligent. The things you have to say matter. Your experiences matter. I had her support. Did did that take a while to kind of sink in? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Especially when, given the situation I was in then, was after I'd been through my foster family when I was 16, I was then on that benefit system. The way that the media comments about you, the way the public service people that you have to go in and work with, how they speak to you, how they treat you, how they describe you, it all very much reinforces that message that you're worthless and you want to be grateful for anything you get. Mm. Perpetuated that message. It was quite hard to hold on to her message. Um, and around about I that bet. age, I remember about that age, I was also getting the messages as well, as all girls do, that you're not pretty enough, you're not thin enough, you need to be this, you need to have longer hair, you need to do these things. All these messages I was getting were all perpetuating the idea that I wasn't good enough. I also hadn't had rehabilitation support after being a victim of childhood sexual abuse. So all the grooming tactics that the perpetrator, all those messages, and reinforced by the fact that my family had picked them. All these feelings of worthlessness were very much perpetuated for years, um, apart from with this worker, Bex. Until I was 17, when I met my husband, and I had my son, Len, who is going to be 16 this year. We met and we got married. And I thought that was what I wanted so I could have a family of my own and belong. But that didn't work. No, do you, do you think, looking back, that you were ready to have a good relationship, that you had resolved a lot of this inner turmoil that you had? I, absolutely not. But I was, as we all are, force-fed the idea that, you know, the best day in a girl's life is when she's a bride. And I think because I felt the loss of my family. I tried to create one of my own, so to speak. Totally makes sense. Yeah. So, but I didn't have any boundaries. I still didn't have any self-worth. My son's dad is a nice guy. I suppose I was, my whole life was in pleasing other people. 
there was none of me in there. And then when I had my son, he was later diagnosed with autism and sensory processing disorder. So their mental disabilities and really invested my time and my work into trying to address that and battle for my child's needs. Whereas his dad was very much about himself and felt as a dad that he only needed to do the bare minimum and society agreed with him, you know, just yeah. acknowledge the child and see him a couple of times a year, the only dad of the year, whereas single mums were terrible people and we never do anything good enough. And if we stay at home, we're a bad mum. If we go to work, we're a bad mum. And if we look pretty, we're a bad mum. And if we look a mess, we're a bad mum. And you can't win the mum game, right? Right. So it sounds like also you were actually forced to change your focus from yourself now. Yeah. To your son yeah for sure he definitely he because i absolutely believed and every day was perpetuated with this idea that i was worthless and didn't matter here i had this beautiful perfect amazing reason and i wanted to show him the world and i wanted to battle for whatever it was he needed and learn all about autism and sensory things and tried to make myself the best mum I could be. And a part of me very much was, I want to make him feel to his bones, know that he's loved because I felt unloved yeah. after what had happened with my family. So there was an element of that too. Yeah. I think that's pretty common that, you know, we look at our parents and say, oh, well, they didn't give us this or they they weren't perfect in some way and we're yeah. going to go overboard to try to compensate for that. Did you feel during this process that you yourself were starting to mature a bit and work your way through some of your own stuff? I don't think I worked through some of it. I think growing up, I had what they call I think it's called Cinderella Childhood Syndrome. Basically, because I was the eldest girl, it was expected that I would participate in things that were really things the adults should have been doing. There were four of us that lived together. There was myself, I was the eldest. Then there was my brother, Mark. Then there was my sister, Katie. And then there was my sister, Sasha. Every weekend, every day of the week, I would make them breakfast. I would get their school stuff ready. I would take them to school. I would do the homework with them. I would make the tea. It was expected that I was the eldest. And yeah, you just fell into that. Th there was a sense that if I ever even thought of saying no, the answer would be, how selfish are you? So again, it's that message that, you know, the needs of everyone else matter more than yours because I don't matter. And I still, even though I left the home, I still very much kept in touch with my brothers and sisters. I would meet them after school and walk them to my mum and my stepdad's house. So even though I didn't see my mum and the perpetrator, I still saw my brothers and sisters and made sure that I still saw them. I was mature when I was like nine, I guess. Forced to be. Really didn't have a childhood, did you? I guess when we used to go to my granddad's at the weekends and I felt like I had a bit of a childhood there. Still had to, you know, check they all had tea and sort of scrape knees and all that stuff. I also got to, you know, fill up my Wellington boots with tadpoles and try and get my brother to put his foot in and <laughs> pick apples on my granddad's allotment and 
Uh, you know, there the was definitely elements of more freedom when we were with my granddad, although looking back, I think he wasn't the most responsible person. He just let us do whatever we wanted pretty much. It must have been a great sense of freedom anyway. How old were you when your sister was murdered? So I was in my early 20s, so Len was, Len was about four by that time. And I saw my, so my family moved to Blackpool because my mum developed cancer. And so she moved to Blackpool so that then they could be near. There's a certain hospital in Blackpool. That's where people go for treatment. So they moved there and I was already living, you know, my own life still where we lived previous to that. So I didn't move to Blackpool with them. I saw them less. But Len was four and my sister Sasha, she was talking to me about that in college. She wanted to learn to be a teacher for kids who were like Len. Her and Len were quite close because my sister Sasha, she had a bed that it had kind of drawers in the bottom of it and she would just fill them with milky bars and loads of treats like that. So whenever I would go visiting to see my brothers and sisters, he would just go straight up to Auntie Sasha's room because that's where all the goods were. That's where all the sweets were in Sasha's bed. And she would let him play loads of games and stuff on her laptop and things like that. Len and Auntie Sasha were close, got lots of selfies with them. Whereas I was, at that time, Sasha was 15, 16. And I was telling her things like, if you're going to put foundation on, make sure you blend it into your neck. Don't talk to that boy. He's not good enough for you. You know, all that <laughs> so, sort of yeah, stuff. Yeah, you were moving in as the substitute mom. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, like, on, yeah. on her Facebook, I was like, no, they don't sound like they're good enough to be your friend, Sasha. Just block them. <laughs> yeah, I still was trying to do my job as a big sister and protect you know, protect them. Yeah. What happened? And how was she killed? It's 10 years ago now, which is crazy. But Blackpool, it's like a seaside resort. So it has lots of, I guess, B&B, I guess you might call them motels there. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And so because there's so many, because it's like a seaside resort, of teenagers got jobs as maids, you know, over the weekend. They were get made jobs and that was normal because of all the tourism and so Sasha had been added on Facebook by this guy this guy turned out to be called David Minto and she had met David Minto once before with her friend who said that she went to college with him he said to her me and my girlfriend run a hotel I'm the manager we're looking for somebody to come and do, you know, maid and cleaning work. And Sasha at that age, she had a boyfriend called Danny and she was wanting to be more financially independent. Although she still lived at home, she wanted her own money mm-hmm. rather than being nagged every time she asked for money, you know, off her parents. So he invited her around on the Monday for a trial and she told her dad and her mum about this and my mum about it and they went they talked to us and then they picked her up a couple of hours later and she said oh I just had to clean up in some of the rooms and he said that he wants me to start in a couple of days so 
that's what we thought was happening. Sasha thought she'd done a trial run and he'd been happy enough and that he was going to give her that job. So two days later, her dad dropped her off and she went in, but she didn't come out. Basically, David Mitchell had previous um, sexual offences with multiple other girls that we didn't know about. And he had invited Sasha to the hotel because he had decided that he wanted to rape and kill her. Obviously, we didn't know that. So not just rape, he had the intention to also murder her. Um, yeah, he had, he brought pre-bought material to okay. deal with her afterwards. So what he did to her is he stabbed her 58 times in the head and the neck, although there were over a oh hundred stab wounds on her body. He did this with such force that the blade at the end was bent. He raped her twice and then he set her on fire, genitals first to try and hide the evidence. Oh, my God. And wow. put her in and a bath. And you said that he had a history of this type of behavior? Um, he had, there had been a girl that had reported it to the police and they hadn't taken it forward. They'd done something called NFA, which means the Crime Prosecution Service had looked at the case and they decided they held their own mini trials and they decide that they don't think a jury will convict and so they send it down and say no we're not going to put it to trial we have a big problem with that in the UK so there was a girl who had reported it to the police and Sasha's friend who she had met David Minto with he had tried to rape her too but she didn't tell anyone because we live in a victim blaming culture she thought her boyfriend would assume mm -hmm. that she had asked and that her boyfriend would be mad yeah. at her, so she didn't tell anyone. They were the two incidents that were deemed relevant enough to be brought into the trial, but I know that most girls don't report, and so yeah. I don't know if yeah, there are any true. others. That's true here, too, although, you know, hopefully we're getting better results with DNA testing and this thing, but, you know, when it comes down to he said, she said, it doesn't usually work for the victim that well. They caught this guy pretty soon after. After he set her on fire and put her in the back street, he was so delighted at what he had done. He knocked on his neighbor's doors and said, there's a mannequin burning in the back street and got everyone to go look at it and then pointed at Sasha and said, mannequins don't bleed. Mm -hmm. So he... <laughs> He couldn't help but want to show people what he had done. He didn't admit that he was guilty until his appeal after his trial. Hopefully this guy is behind bars somewhere. He is. He's in there for at least another 25 years. We as a family were trying to get it made to be a whole life sentence because we believe he will be a risk when he gets out. I but can't yeah. believe it's not a life sentence. Oh, my God. But uh, anyway, without getting into that, what was happening to you through this? Because you were a protector, right? It was very difficult. I did and still do feel a real sense of guilt, failure to protect her. When we went to the trial, we were there for two weeks. And on one of the days, there was um, a guy who ran a hotel that was next door but one his. 
And he said that he had heard screaming and that he had heard someone shouting. Oh, gosh. Yeah. The guilt of not answering and will live with me for the rest of my life. At what point through this trial, through this whole ordeal, Gemma, did you say to yourself, I can't let this go. I need to do something. I need to figure out a way to do something against violence towards women and towards girls. Was there something that, was it a gradual shift to activism on your part? No, it was hearing David Minchow in the dark refer to my sister as it and that instead of she. And I had a bit of a moment where I thought to myself, I've got male friends who I love very much. And I've heard them do that to women. You know, sat in the beer garden on a sunny day and they will sort of elbow each other and say, check that out, take a look at them. I'd give that a go. And I thought, what's that? What is that? Men I love and that man there have in common. What is that? And I now know. And where did that lead you? That led me to Googling stuff and then finding the Everyday Sexism Project, which was a feminist kind of Facebook group. And I joined that and I learned all about sexual objectification, um, which is what, what you would call that, referring to women as it and that instead of as people. I read the books that people suggested reading and I listened a lot and started volunteering to lots of different organisations because I wanted to find out what sexual objectification was and why violence against women and girls happened, why it happened so often and people seemed to be accepting it as though it's a normal part of life. And I guess that's where mine began for sure. Yeah, so what... Uh in research on this topic, what did you discover that led you to start the, your organization, Yes Matters? So what I discovered was, was a few things. The first was gender stereotypes and then being the root of all these things, but also where we were getting these messages that these gender stereotypes and violence against women and girls was acceptable and sexualizing girls was acceptable. And what I discovered was that young people, instead of getting a proper sex and relationship education, they were getting Pornhub. And I, that was what I wanted to do. I thought, well, the trick to changing this is children and young people. We need to give them better yeah. education instead of pornography giving them the education. And that's where the first Yes Matters petition came from. And I called it Yes Matters because I heard all the excuses in the world while she didn't say no, while she didn't bite him off, while she was wearing that, while she went on with it. Legally, consent is defined as something that you want to participate in without coercion. So it's the yes that matters. So I wanted to get away from the no means no message. And with my new feminist friends that I had met in the Everyday Sexism Project, I held a petition and protest in Manchester 
Newcastle, Glasgow, outside and in Blackpool, all on the same day, all at the same time. And we got enough signatures to get Parliament to have to discuss it. And I guess that's where it began, really. What was the reaction from Parliament? The reaction from Parliament was quite interesting, actually. They sort of agreed that pornography being sex education wasn't ideal. So they agreed with that. Initially, they thought that it wasn't the state's place. The two parties, I guess, that tend to be in power are either the Conservatives, who believe that the state shouldn't have involvement in hardly anything, and that it should be a free market on all of society's problems. And you have Labour, who believes the state has a responsibility to make things equal. What I did was I appealed to them through money. I sort of said, how much does it cost for a murder investigation? How much money is it costing? So do you Mm -hmm. not think we should be... It costs millions. Every time someone is murdered, that investigation costs millions of pounds. So why don't we put not even a quarter of that into prevention? You know, this could save you money. Very smart, Gemma. Fine. Money talks. Well, it does. And if men cared enough about women to stop violence against us, you know, they've had a millennia to do something about that and they haven't. So I don't think there is ever been any oppression in history where the people being oppressed have asked nicely enough and so it's stopped happening. I try to speak their language. What do they care about? And money seems to be what a lot of people in power care about. So I was invited to Prime Minister's Questions um, by Ed Miliband, who was the leader of the opposition at the time. He was like the Labour Party leader. And I went and I spoke to him and I sort of said, you know, these organisations are teaching our children without consequence, without regulation, and there are consequences to that. And I want to know what you're going to do about that. Are Mm. you going to do anything about that? He was very nice, but it seemed a little bit tokenistic because my sister's murder was very much in the news and stuff. And there were lots of people who were, yes, this is a very serious matter. But then when it came to, well, what are you going to do about it? There was nothing really there. It was just our thoughts and prayers. Yeah. Has anything moved forward? Have you had any progress on the policy end? Yeah, because I'm stubborn and didn't go away. I started working with an MP called Sarah Champion who in her area, Rotherham, there'd been a lot of child sexual exploitation, very publicly so. And she was very passionate about wanting to address this stuff. So I started doing work with her and we pushed and we finally, in 2020, now compulsory for all schools in England and Wales to have what we call PSHE, um, which is Personal Health and Social Education which the three areas that I made sure were included in that were consent, healthy relationships, and the harm of gender stereotypes. So now, from 2020, every boy and girl in England and Wales gets that education in every single school. Congratulations. Thanks, That's just so amazing what you've been able to do. What have you learned about yourself? 
through this whole process? Besides um, how to strike fame into the hearts of men, you mean? Well, no, you said you mentioned, well, I'm stubborn, you know, I'm tenacious. That's one thing. I'm not going to go away. What else have you learned about Gemma? I have learned that I am fueled by rage, I think. Every day, every day in the news, there is something. In the UK, you know, it's three women a week are killed by an ex-partner or current partner, or 10 women a week if you include the women pushed to suicide by coercive control. And that has been the case for my whole life as well. That's okay, you know? So there's no shortage of things to get enraged about. And whilst that's been happening, I decided, well, if it's clear that if you want anything done, Gemma, you're going to have to do it for yourself. So I went to university and I got a degree in youth work because I wanted to know what's the most effective way to engage young people in these messages. And then I did a degree in community and social policy because I wanted to know the fancy buzzwords to make the people in the middle class and the higher classes listen to the things you were saying. And just last year, I completed a master's in teaching children with additional needs because they're the most vulnerable and I want to know how to protect them too. And I think I have just spent the last 10 years getting involved with different panels and different campaigns and working with children and young people and helping those who have been abused through Yes Matters, giving them that support and rehabilitation and annoying politicians. Yeah, I've just been trying my best to get things done and if not to make change, make the people who have the power to change things, make them look bad enough that they want to change them. Yeah, and to build awareness around this issue. I mean, we're bombarded with this, as you said. How many murders take place? How many rapes happen every single day? But I think we kind of become numb to it, right? Unless we're personally involved. And solutions, I think, need to be presented as well as, oh, that was horrific, or, you know, sending thoughts and prayers, as you said said before. You know, you need to take that to action, and it looks like you are helping to show the public that, you know, there are ways to do this. There are ways to take action and, and really make positive change. So congratulations to you, Gemma. Your story, you've gone from being a victim yourself to being a feminist and an activist, and you're not done yet, for sure. Definitely not. My main focus is I can't save the girl I want to save, right? So that's done. I can't do that. But I can save other girls in the world. And that's why I'm so passionate, especially about gender stereotypes, because I really do feel that they are the key to all of this. So when I do um, training with professionals, I always ask them, what do we say to our sons? What does be a man mean? And they always say the same things. They always say strong, tough, logical and not emotional, good at violence so they mm. can protect you, big, dominant, entitled to respect, in control. And I say, okay, if I asked you to write a list for a domestic abuser, would the list be any different? Wow, Gemma. Yeah. Right. I was like, so uh, why exactly? 
are we teaching our boys to do this again? And the same thing is this idea of man up, grow up hair, don't cry like a girl. We also teach boys that emotions are not human, they're female and therefore they are less of that, which is why we see... Makes weakness. Exactly. Which is why we see high suicide rates in young men. It's why we see men commit the majority of crime. Every other newspaper article is, they got told no, so they reacted violently. But which emotion do we teach boys and men that they're allowed to show? Anger. None of the others. Yeah. If we stop teaching them that, (laughs) and we stop putting them into these harmful boxes, and then saying that we're shocked when this stuff happens, well, let's stop grooming them to do that in the first place. Do you involve family, like parents also, in some of these trainings? Because this needs to be reinforced at home, right? Well, the reason I got it into school rather than going down the parent route was because the majority of perpetrators of child sexual abuse are family members or family friends. And so I wanted it to be at school so that then there was a safe place for them to explore what was healthy, what was safe, what wasn't outside of the home. And also I do find whenever we go into a school, we have a letter for parents to let them know we're going in your school. Here's what we're going to be talking about. And nearly every time I get a very defensive dad going, you can't teach my daughter. And I'm like, "Mm, I can. Yeah. (laughs) And I'm good. And his son needs to go home every night. That's why it's like. Yeah, um, exactly. So it's it's a big challenge. It is. I'm not the popular woman in every room I go into, I'll be honest with you. But I do think, you know, I know feminists have the whole thing about, you know, oh, you all hate men and, you know, eat babies and create lesbians and all that. But actually, I think that continuing to ignore this is failing our boys and our girls alike. We don't want our boys to have futures where if they need help, they would rather kill themselves and ask for it. We don't want that. We don't want our boys who have so few emotional regulation skills that they would rather kill someone they love because they couldn't control them because they didn't feel like a man. Like, <laughs> what's this whole pressure of being a man? I mean, feminism isn't just about women. It's about really equal opportunities for all genders. And I I think sometimes people get confused and they think, oh, you know, going back to the old days when women were burning their bras and, you know, it's all about women. Well, it is in some cases, you know, not in some cases, it is about empowering women to stand up for their rights, but also honoring and respecting the rights of all, right? Well, yeah, um, it's, I've since I've started this work, I've been told that I hate men. Honestly, I have something... In my kitchen, I call not all men bingo, where I have the same arguments that I get every single day um, because they're the same arguments all the time. When actually, if we got rid of gender stereotypes, and the girl gender stereotypes are just as harmful, if we get rid of them all and mm-hmm. we say, hey, you know what, if Jack likes the colour pink and if Jack wants to be a stay- stay-at-home dad and if Jack needs help with his mental health, None of that will make his bits fall off. He is just as much of a man as if he doesn't want to do that stuff. It's not about hating boys or girls. It's about... It's about honor and respect. Exactly. It is. And, you know, and I certainly hope, you know, we're seeing some change 
as gender roles become a bit more fluid. Thank you so much for being on Badass Women and for sharing your story. How can my listeners learn more about you and your organization? So we have a website, so yes-matters.co.uk. Um, and also we're going to be doing some work with Culture Reframed, on, which is an American organization with Gail Dines looking at pornography. So we're going to be in some way coming over there and causing trouble over there soon too. If you have a child or young person or you are a child or young person and you need help or your friend needs help or you need advice or support, we're on all the social medias and our help and support is free and it can be anonymous. If you need our help, we're here for you. Well, Gemma, thank you again. and Thank you for all that you are doing. Thank you, everyone, for listening. If you like the show, please rate and and subscribe and like it and and review. We hope we'll get a five-star review. So this has been really an incredible journey with Gemma listening to her story, going from being a victim herself to an activist. And I can't think of anything more badass. I think we need more women to follow their passion and, and step up. So till next week, Be bold and be your badass self.